All right, if you would, take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel. We're still making our way through the Bible in a series we've called Unravel, which we're trying to go through every book and chapter of the Bible and untangle some of the knots, some of the confusion, and set some things straight for us. We're trying to tie the Old and New Testaments together as much as we can, and we're trying to teach through all of this in proper historical chronological order. So we've been in Jeremiah for a while, and then last Sunday we came to Jeremiah 25, which is uh, 605 BC when King Nebuchadnezzar came down and uh, invaded Jerusalem, carried some people captive, included among those who were taken away was a young man named Daniel, along with three others who we know better by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we've stepped out of Jeremiah now for a while. We're picking up the account of Daniel and his friends there in Babylon. You know, it occurs to me, uh, and you don't have to look hard to see this, that man's lust for power and control is insatiable. Throughout history, you, you look at history, you read the accounts of people who've risen to power people who've fallen from power. And history is, is riddled with the debris of lives and entire nations that have been ruined by someone who was bloodthirsty for control, who was wielding unbridled, unchecked power. I would go so far as to say this, that apart from God, man is incapable of ruling others and ruling himself. Nebuchadnezzar was one of these people in history. The Babylonians had not long before conquered the greatest nation on earth at the time, Assyria. They had gone in and destroyed Nineveh. And now Nebuchadnezzar has taken over the throne from his father, and he's gotten a taste of power. He's gotten a taste of control and as always, when it is unbridled and unchecked, it goes to one's head. And they want more and more and more. This is where career politicians still come from to this day. Once they get a taste of it, they cannot let it go. It's rare when someone does. So last week we saw Nebuchadnezzar bringing his armies down. He just fought the Battle of Carchemish, famous battle from history in Egypt. He'd come down now to the nation of Judah and attacked Jerusalem. He had taken the brightest and best of the people back to Babylon. And he had put them into what he called a, a training program. It was really an indoctrination program to try and um, change their lifestyle, their beliefs, and their identity. And so now Daniel and his three friends have been placed into this program. They were either royalty back in Judah, or they were just simply the elite. They were the, you know, the top students in the class, so to speak. These are the people Nebuchadnezzar wanted to sort of infuse into his kingdom and um, indoctrinate them, bring them over to his side, so now he's got the brightest and the best working for him. So this is now where Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are. And they are being pressured to change but we saw just sort of the start last week of 
how they have committed to stand firm in their faith in God without wavering. So we come this morning to chapters 2 and 3. I'm going to do my best um, to tie these two chapters together today. They're usually taught separately, but I, I hope you'll see when we're done that I think there is a strong connection here that we, that we shouldn't miss. Also, the chapters, a lot of the chapters in Daniel are extremely lengthy, and um, I think out of all the books in the Bible, Daniel, you know, one verse in Daniel contains so much detail. Like Daniel writes at a, at a finely grained level of sharing incredible amounts of detail, and so it can get really long reading through one of these chapters because you're hearing all these names and dates and details, and it just kind of becomes overwhelming. Chapter 2 is sort of one of those chapters. We don't have time to go through every single verse, so let me just summarize the first section of chapter 2 and what happens, and I think we're familiar with this. We're told that King Nebuchadnezzar began having very troubling dreams uh, to the point where he was unable to sleep, and he began getting frazzled and frustrated and uh, was, had some measure of anxiety from these dreams because he didn't know what they meant. And so he called in all of his magicians and sorcerers and wise men and astrologers. He, he brought them in and said to them, um, I want you to explain the dream that I've had. And they said, sure, no problem, king. Just tell us what the dream was, and then we'll explain it to you. And the king said, you know, I have a feeling you guys have been hoodwinking me this whole time. You've just been telling me whatever you feel like telling me. So here's a little test for you. I'm not going to tell you my dream. You're going to tell me what I dreamed. And then you're going to interpret it. And if you can't do that, he said, you'll be cut in pieces and your houses will be burned to the ground. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have a power problem at all. Friendly chap, lovely guy. Love to sit down and have a spot of tea with him. So now these, all these wise men, you know, they're earning their salary from this. I mean, this is their gig, and they've just been exposed. So now look at uh, Daniel chapter 2. We'll pick up in verse 10. They, that is all the wise men, astrologers, and so on, they answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no one who can tell it to the king except, this is interesting, except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. In other words, gods outside of our realm, they're the only ones. You, you realize the admission they've just made here? They're tapped into the wrong source, clearly, and they know that. Verse 12, for this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. You know, a little overreaction there, maybe. Verse 13, so the decree went out. Now it's a law. And they began killing the wise men. And they were sent to look for Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now, just think of the arrogance taking place here. For a king like this, who, when he doesn't get his way, he casually gives orders for people to be killed. But he's not alone in history at all, not by a long shot. Rulers throughout history have given orders for people around them to be put to death on a whim um, if they simply 
weren't happy with the person, if they didn't get what they want from the person, or if they felt threatened by this person in any way. King Herod the Great, uh, by the way, a title he gave himself. I'm always a little leery of people who give themselves titles uh, through the road of life. It just seems odd to me. King Herod the Great, during his reign, killed his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his wife, and three of his children because he felt that they were trying to undermine him. Caesar Augustus said it's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. He was known for this, for his, uh, his lust for power and control. I mean, look, all the way through to present day, name, name a country, North Korea. You know, the little fellow over there, Kim, Kim Jong-un, uh, a few years back, had his uncle put to death because his uncle was uh, not agreeing with him on everything. And you see, I saw it not long ago, what you see when this happens, when a leader has unbridled power, he rules the people with fear. You watch sometime news footage of those poor people in North Korea. Whenever Kim, Kim Jong-un parades through the streets or comes into a, the, the podium of a big assembly, just watch how hard those people are clapping and smiling. They fear for their life because he has a death grip on them, and they know that if they don't clap and smile and nod and cheer, they'll probably be put to death. In fact, when, um, I'm getting off track here, but <laughs> Stalin, you know, back in the, uh, in the early 1900s, <clears throat> when people would applaud for, for Stalin, they would, they would clap for, forever because no one wanted to be the first to stop clapping. They were that afraid that they were going to be called out and put to death. So Nebuchadnezzar goes on this, you know, this reckless rampage here um, of just putting all these people to death. And I would say, you know, unchecked power always leads men astray. It's not something that we can handle. It's not something that we were made to handle. Because the truth is, I think every man and woman ever born is, is striving to be the uncontested ruler of their own life to, to some degree or another. You are and I am. We struggle with this. Nietzsche said, whose writings you know, influence Hitler, if that tells you anything, Nietzsche said, uh, if there is a God... How can I bear not to be that God? In other words, I am the master and ruler of my own life. And when a person has that as their framework, I'm telling you, it'll distort every relationship they have. It will taint every motive of their heart. One of the principles the, the Bible shows us from start to finish that, as I said earlier, apart from God, man is incapable of governing and ruling himself. <laughs> Never mind others. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar's death squad now, they're going out through the city, they're rounding these people up, and they come to Daniel and his three friends to put them to death. Daniel immediately prays and petitions God and asks that they might not die. And God gives Daniel the interpretation to the king's dream. Daniel said to the uh, the the captain who was coming for them, what's all this about? What's going on? And, and he told him. And so Daniel prayed, and 
God gave him the dream that the king had. So Daniel says, please take me before the king. And we pick up in verse 26. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that's his new name, are you able to make known to me the dream which I've seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king, verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. I can't spend too much time on this, but I, want to, I just want to say to you, that one phrase right there, I would encourage you to underline, to highlight in your Bible. But there is a God in heaven. That one phrase is the key to every attack, every obstacle, every threat, every setback that you will ever face in life. You're faced with a situation that is overwhelming, and you say, I do not have what it takes to get through this. The very next thing out of your mouth should be, but there is a God in heaven. When you're faced with something that has just decimated you and your family, and you don't see any way forward, you say, we simply cannot recover from this. The next thing you say should be, but there is a God in heaven. What a beautiful statement this is. What a beautiful confession this is, that Daniel would go before the most powerful man on earth at the time and say to him, um, your best people couldn't do this, and I can't either, but there's a God in heaven who can. What a testimony. And then Daniel goes on to tell the dream. Now here we get into the, the real details of this, verse 31. He said, you looked, O king, and there before you stood a great image or statue. This great image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its form was awesome. The image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Verse 34, as you looked, a stone was cut out, but not by human hands. What an interesting statement. It struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. And then Daniel goes on in the next couple of verses and says, uh, you, O king, now he begins to give in the interpretation. He says, you, O king, you are this head of gold. And I imagine, I, I just have to imagine that in that moment, Nebuchadnezzar must have puffed his chest out just a little further, you know, like the guys at the gym do. I can't tolerate it. Um, I seriously cannot... <laughs> it's so sad to me. I just want to go up and hug him and go, man, it'll be okay. Look, you'll, <laughs> you'll find meaning in life. Um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar must have just 
he must have been filled with some pride in that moment. You, O king, you are the head of gold. Yeah, that's right, man. I am. I'm the top of the heap. But Daniel's not finished yet. He goes on to tell the king that even though he is the head of gold, and again, we don't have time to get into all this, but Daniel said, king, it was, it was my God who put you in power. He says, even though you're the head of gold, your kingdom will not last forever. Now, Daniel's treading on thin ice here. Or is it skating on thin ice, I think? Not treading. He says to him, after you, king, after Nebuchadnezzar, there are going to be four other great kingdoms that come, each one represented by a different section in this statue in your dream. And it's interesting, as you trace through history, from the time of Nebuchadnezzar for the next 600 years to the time of Christ, what you see is the exact unfolding of this dream, this prophecy taking place in history. After the Babylonians were the greatest nation on earth, they were defeated by the Persian Empire, the, the, the Medo-Persian Empire, they're often called, and they were represented by the chest and arms of silver. And then came the Greek Empire, led by Alexander the Great, represented by the belly and thighs of bronze. And he came along and obliterated the Persians, conquered most of the world, uh, sat down and wept at the end of it because there were no more worlds to conquer, and he was only 32 years old when he died. And then came the Roman Empire, the legs of iron, strong nation, brutalized everybody in their path. And then the Roman Empire split, represented by the feet of clay mixed with iron. So, you know, again, I, I struggle with... Well, I don't need to go there. I just, it's amazing to me that people can read the Bible and look at history and go, yeah, that's, it's not true. The Bible's not true. Like, seriously, how, how much evidence are you willing to bury to maintain that position? Daniel tells the interpretation of this dream, and history bears it out for all of us to see. But then Daniel said something remarkable, and this is what, man, really just gets my blood pumping when I read this chapter Chapter 2, verse 44. So he's explained all this. These kingdoms are going to rise and fall. And then he says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Four world empires were going to rise and fall. And then what happened in the reign of the last empire, Rome? I'll tell you what happened. In a quiet little town that nobody cared about, an angel said to a young woman, you're going to conceive and bear a son, and you're going to call his name Jesus. And although he would have the humblest of beginnings... He would become great, and he would sit on the throne of his father David forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the stone that is fashioned out of nowhere here in Daniel. He's not made by human hands. He comes, he begins small, but he comes and he crushes this great statue, and then he becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. This is astounding stuff. 
And listen, this is what we're talking about right here. It's, it's not something that just mattered to those people back then. This matters to us. In fact, this is everything for us. As we look at the rulers of the earth today, and you know, we, we sometimes become gripped with fear as, as we see all their wicked deeds unfolding. We see all the darkness encroaching. We must remind ourselves our security is not found in any political affiliation. Our hope is not built upon the promise of a, a better world and a better life here, but rather in the sure promise of the king who is coming to rule and reign in perfect righteousness forever. So when you feel overwhelmed by this world, pause and look up and remember all the kingdoms of this world, all the monsters who are wielding power over people, causing them to live in fear. All of those kingdoms, all of them are going to be crushed and obliterated one day by this stone who is coming named Jesus, who is going to destroy them all and rule and reign forever. That is how we must navigate this life. Now, look, you know, you've heard me up here many, many, many times bemoan the condition of our country. I will not stop doing that because I want to speak out and fight back against the evil taking place. So if you're planning on me stopping talking about that, I'm not going to. I also want to be very cautious, though. I don't want to overdo that. I want to stay focused on God's word. There are days when I get sidetracked and I get so overwhelmed with the stupidity and the evil I see taking place in our world that's attacking our children in schools. It infuriates me. However, I must remind myself that that will not be the end of the story. Those people will have their day. God's, God's letting the leash out on them continually. Go ahead, take a little more, take a little more. But I'm telling you, the day is coming when all of these satanic evil people in our world who are trying to destroy our children, they are going to realize that they were nothing at all in the grand scheme of things, and they're going to be wiped out from the face of the earth. I'm telling you, it's coming. It is coming. This is how we must navigate this life. He is our stronghold in times of uncertainty. He is our fortress when the enemy is closing in. Not the Democrats, not the Republicans, not Donald Trump. No one else can fix this world but Christ. Well, at the end of this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is so dazzled by what Daniel has done that he says, he declares, Daniel's God is the God of gods. And we think, wow. Nebuchadnezzar's just been converted. He's now a believer, and he's worshiping the God of Israel. But then we come to chapter 3. Sadly, we discover that the king's conversion wasn't real at all. He was charmed by what God did, but he wasn't changed by it. Hmm. He was impressed, just like the people in the Old Testament who saw the miracles. And the day after God parted the Red Sea, they were grumbling and complaining. Show us another miracle, they said to Jesus. He said, no, you've already had enough. He said, even if someone came back from the dead, you wouldn't believe. Nebuchadnezzar saw something astounding. And for a moment, he said, oh, Daniel's God, he's the one. 
But then we come to chapter 3, and we now see King Nebuchadnezzar building this enormous statue of gold, 90 feet tall. And then we see what he does. Once again, we see unbridled, unchecked power. Daniel chapter 3, verse 4. The king has now given the command to be issued to the nation, and a herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the pipes, and all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. Verse 7. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of all the instruments, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I want you to notice, it says, all the people bowed down and worshipped the statue. All the people. It's amazing to me how quickly people will choose comfort over convictions. I'm not standing up here being cocky and saying I would never fall into that category. I pray that God will keep me strong. On my own, um, I will not stand for much of anything. I pray that God will keep all of us strong if we're ever faced with a challenge like this. But it's astounding to me how quickly, though, how quickly, how easily people are willing to choose comfort over convictions. Benjamin Franklin said this, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Just imagine this scene with Nebuchadnezzar. All the people, all the people in Babylon, all nations, all languages, they all fell on their knees when they heard the music out of fear of Nebuchadnezzar. Not because they loved the statue, not because they had a desire to worship it. They did it out of fear. What a proud moment this must have been for him. Imagine him standing on the balcony. Here's the music playing, and he just looks out, and as far as his eyes can see across his kingdom, the people are bowing down to the statue that he's put up in his honor. Oh, that must have been quite a moment until, until someone came to him and whispered in his ear and said, Hey, king. Oh, boy, I hate to tell you this, but um, those, those guys you brought from Judah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not bowing down. We're told again that the king became furious. He called them in before him, and graciously, you know, he gives them one more chance to worship the statue. Look at verse 15. He said, you know, like, <clears throat> clearly there's been some misunderstanding. I get it. You didn't get the email. It's Okay. Here's what you need to do. As soon as you hear the music, just bow down. Everything will be fine. He says, everything will be good. Verse 15, but if you do not worship, you'll be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And listen to this statement. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? And once again, you hear the arrogance and the desire to control everyone around him. What he failed to factor in was that these three young men trusted God more than they feared man. 
verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. What? (laughs) Wow. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If we're thrown in the burning, fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, again, time is always my enemy, but I must say, you know, I hear it all the time, Phil, Romans 13 says, yes, I know. I know. Romans 13 says, obey those who are in authority and governance over you. I I understand that. But people never quote the verses below that. It's talking about good, godly rulers who lead you in the right way. I can show you case after case after case, this probably being the pinnacle of them all, where God's people stood toe-to-toe with their leaders and said, not going to do it. You know, we are not going to obey you. They weren't being jerks about it. This is where I think the problem comes in. We don't have to be rude. We don't have to be ugly. We don't have to be unkind. But we need to be firm. And I can just tell you now, on public record, I will defy this government that is in control right now. I will defy them. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of hearing all Christians just need to roll over and lay down and be a doormat and whatever. That's not what the Bible says. If they continue pushing their agenda, I will defy them. If they put me in jail, I will defy them. I don't care. I don't care about my life that much to disobey God. Sorry, I don't. These three young men here, boy, they had something built into them. Whew! I would love to meet their parents one day. I mean, this is remarkable. Face to face with the most powerful feared man on earth. And they said to him, you don't know who you're messing with. Our God is able to deliver us from the fire But even if he doesn't know this, king, even if we die in the fire, he will deliver us from your hands. You have no control over us. We're not going to disobey God in order to obey you. Well, we know what happened. We don't have time to look through all this, and we've heard this so much. I I intentionally didn't want the fiery furnace thing to be our focus today. I've, I've spoken about this before. We know what happened. They were thrown into the fire, and God delivered them unharmed. And it might be good for us to remember just this little side thought. Maybe it's not a side thought at all. God didn't deliver them from the fire. He delivered them in the fire. See, we so often say, oh, God, don't let me go through this. God, please keep me from this trouble, this pain. Sometimes God says, that's exactly where I want you to be, in the furnace, in the heat in the trouble, in the pain. 
And then I'll show myself strong in that situation. But there's something that never really gets talked about from these two chapters. As I said, at the end of chapter 2, we saw a man who appeared to have genuinely humbled himself before God. But in chapter 3 here, we see that he still refused to let God rule over him. He was determined to be in control. He was determined to make a name for himself. And this is the quest he's on. And we see this from extra-biblical history as well. He was, he was obsessed with his name. He was ex- obsessed with his title. He was striving to make a name for himself. In his palace, I showed you the photograph of that last week, the ruins that are still left there. In that palace, as he was having that built, what archaeologists have discovered is tens of thousands of handmade bricks that, that made up the walls of this palace. And in every single brick is inscribed the name of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I mean, he was making sure that long after he was gone, people were always going to know his name. He was making a name for himself. I find it interesting as well, nine times in chapter 3, nine times we're told that Nebuchadnezzar set up this statue. Like, it's not a detail you would need to repeat, Nine times in this chapter, it says, verse 1, he set it up. Verse 2, the image which King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Verse 3, the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and so on. He set it up. He set it up. He set it up. And what it's showing us is that he was the one in control of all this. He was the one trying to build himself up. A 90-foot statue. He was the one trying to set himself up above everybody else. It was his ego that drove him to try and make a name for himself. And it's so interesting to me. You look back at the history of Babylon, and you see that this very place where Nebuchadnezzar erected this statue and had his kingdom and tried to make a name for himself, was the same place where the Tower of Babel had been built. And those people were also trying to make a name for themselves. Look quickly at this. Go back to Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. It says this, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Right, That's what we read about last week with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried where? Nebuchadnezzar carried where? Into the land of Shinar. All right, now go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11 quickly. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Verse 4. Then they said to one another, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Same place, same problem. Throughout all of scripture, Babylon is representative of man and his kingdom, as opposed to the kingdom of God that is one day coming. And we see these continual attempts of, uh, of man to try and set himself up to build his kingdom above God. Was that not the very first problem? When Satan 
said, I am going to set myself up above God. This is still rampant today. Men and women still try to elevate themselves above everyone else and to make a lasting name for themselves. It's built into our sin nature. But in the end, of course, all, all man's attempts to establish his own everlasting kingdom will fail. God's kingdom alone will be established forever. And you know, in an ironic twist, just another one of those small details that catch my eye, Nebuchadnezzar demanded specifically that all peoples, all nations, and all languages bow down before his image. All peoples, all nations, all languages. But I find it so uh, ironic that Revelation tells us at the end when all is said and done that it's going to be every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation who will not be bowing down before Nebuchadnezzar, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, we're told, will bow before the throne of heaven, declaring that God alone is God and that his kingdom alone will last forever. Every earthly kingdom, listen, I'm done. Every earthly kingdom will one day be wiped away, including yours, including mine. So let me ask you, where are you building your kingdom? How foolish it would be to spend our life like Nebuchadnezzar, striving to build our empire only to realize one day when the sun sets and the tide comes in that it was nothing more than a castle made of sand and it all gets washed away. Oh, I'm not saying don't work hard, don't strive, don't save, don't, don't be promoted. Listen, Christians should outshine everybody in the business world. You work hard. You get promoted. You, all that stuff is what we should do. Save your money. Buy some nice things here and there for your family. All of that is good. It's all a gift from God. But be very careful. Be very careful that you are not knowingly or unknowingly building your empire here. Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where rust and moth destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust does not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our heart will always follow what we value most. Where's your kingdom? Where are you building your empire? Don't be like this king. Setting up monuments to yourself here, setting up monuments to yourself there, paying lip service to God, but never actually giving your life to him. Folks, only his kingdom will stand forever. Are you part of his kingdom? Are you like Nebuchadnezzar paying lip service? Hey, that God of the Bible, he's something, but he's not going to rule over me. Young person? Mom and dad, senior, who's ruling your life? 
Are you still in charge? I'm telling you, you're going to make a mess of things. I would encourage you today, if you've never taken the step, you've never taken the step to do what we all have to do to come into the kingdom of God, and that is bow our knee. We have to humble ourselves. I encourage you, if you've never done that, bow before him now in these moments that we have together before we're finished. Say, Lord, I've been trying to control my life. I've been trying to control my attitude, my lusts, my desires, my marriage, my employees. God, I am just, I am drunk with this sickness of control and power. God, would you please break me of that? I bow before you, Lord. I want you to be my king. I want to set your name high above all others. I want you to rule and reign in my life. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that uh, your word, the truth of your word, would be like a gauge right now in all of our hearts by which we can get a true, accurate, right measure of where we stand on this issue. Lord, I know this is a struggle of mine. It's a struggle in my life to try to control all the things in my life so nothing goes wrong, everything's taken care of, everything's done well. So, Lord, begin with me. Help me be very, very cautious about this. And for all of us, Lord, I pray if, if your spirit now is prompting any of us that we have been, in fact, trying to build ourselves up, trying to make a name for ourselves, trying to be in control. Lord, free us from that, would you? Cause us instead to have the desire, maybe for the first time in our life, to bend our knee, to bow our knee before you and confess you as king over every part of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my